0: Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Good morning again, welcome again to Trinity Heights. Good to see you here this, this morning on what I think is a beautiful summer's day. And uh, it's been good to have my father-in-law in town, Brian. Um, he's uh, not been to New York for a few years now, so it's been really fun going around and seeing New York City again through the eyes of someone who doesn't doesn't live here. And it reminds me again of how much I love this place. Um, as long as you don't go down, and have to go through Chelsea Market or Times Square again, I love it. It's it's great great fun. Uh, we actually yesterday we went to the what was it the New York Historical Society is that the one? And um, on on the Upper West Side and. I didn't know. They'd, I've been there a few times. but I didn't know they had this like this movie in there, which crams like the entire history of New York City into eighteen minutes, and it's it's really good. Uh, definitely definitely worth a watch. And it just reminded me of what a tumultuous history the city has had, and the the ups and downs of it, you know, and and the ebb and flow of the city, and its highs and lows, and and you know just after going through. Well, the city's been hit right, quite hard the last few years, and it's not quite the same place as it was before, uh, but it's just nice to be reminded we stand in that sort of that long flow of, of the history, and, and to know how New York City is time and again, just, just sort of roared back to, to life in, in, in really interesting, interesting ways, and uh, it's interesting to be part of that, that story. So, highly recommend it. If you get a chance, go, go see that. Um, so, this morning, we're starting our summer series called The Things That Shape Us. And what I want to do in this series is just look at the Christian basics, you know, praying, reading the Bible, um, witnessing to our faith, you know, um, baptism, communion, these disciplines. Some would even call some of these things the sacraments, right? And, and I want to look at these things that are actually practiced by Christians around the world. It doesn't matter where you are on planet Earth. If you find a church, you find a group of Christians, they will be doing these things. So I just want to ask, you know, why do we do them and, and what, do we, what do we mean? By them, and and what do they mean? What's happening when we do these things? So that's that's where we're going to go in our summer series, uh, which we call the things that shape us. And so, as we begin to think about, you know, why do we do these things? What what does it mean? Um, I, I just want to begin, first of all, by with, with this uh, here. Um, th- this is my this is my grandfather. Martis Uh He was the son of an Anglican minister, and um, with a name like Hovsepien, obviously he's Armenian, right? You can't have a name like that and not be Armenian. Uh, and uh, he spent most of his life living in Iran, where a lot of Armenians had been exiled during the Turkish genocide, so he belonged to a large Armenian community in Iran. He's an incredible guy, He's, he spoke uh, f- and read and wrote in five different languages, and very different languages. They're not all Latin languages or something like that. You know, he, he could read Russian, uh, 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 Cyrillic texts, and, and Persian, and Armenian, and English, it's amazing. And he worked really hard to put himself through night school to become an engineer. And once he qualified as an engineer, he went and worked out in the oil fields of uh, Iran, and Kazakhstan, um, and on, on the pipelines and then as an engineer. And you know, whenever I would whine that it's too hot, nothing much has changed. So even as a kid, I was like this, real whiny kid. Oh, it's too hot. And my grandfather was saying, Kazakhstan, it was 40 degrees in the shade, which is his way of saying, quit your whining. You know? I think 40 degrees is like 105 or, or, or something, something like that. Um, then uh, in the 1960s, my grandfather moved with my grandmother and my mum, my mum was about 12 years old at the time, moved to England, and they went and lived in this little seaside town in the southeast of England, Brian, you'll have heard, Worthing, right? And, and in, that, in the 60s, in that little seaside town in the southeast of England, um, he really stood out as the foreigner, as he would have been uh, referred to back then. He was also a very serious Jesus follower and uh, who at times took Jesus very literally. You know, you know that, that um, passage, for instance, where Jesus says, when you give, make sure your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. And, and and this is Jesus' inventive way of saying, you know, don't make a big show of it. Don't, when you're giving, don't be like the Pharisees who stand on the street corner and blow their trumpets. <laughs> Look how much I'm giving and whom I'm giving to and when I'm giving, right? He's saying, don't do that. Just, just do this and live before the audience of one, before God. God sees what you're doing and do it for him. Um... So when, when my, gra- my grandmother wanted to take him literally on this point, so when he died, we discovered, which my grandmother didn't even know about, all of these envelopes that were stuffed full of money with the different names of people and charities that he was giving to out of his small pension that he had. Uh, he, he was also someone who helped the elderly a lot, and uh, again, when he died, we discovered that the elderly people he was helping were about 10 years younger than him in a lot better shape than he was, but this is the kind of guy he was, very kind of stoic and... and um, consistently kind consistently loving and i think um, very straight talking very straight talking uh, very honest sometimes to a fault because sometimes he'd be a little bit too blunt or abrupt right but that's also what made him so utterly trustworthy you know you, you just you always knew where you were with him and that was a that was a really good thing it was a good feeling and i have to say i think he was one of the the most Grateful, joyful, probably one of the, the happiest people that I have ever met. And for that, for all those reasons that I've just been telling you about and, and more, he remains this towering figure from the first 18 years of my life. Now and then you're going to meet someone who leaves a very clear impression. A very clear impression. And there is no question and there is no doubt as to who this person is and what this person is about. It's like they're a person in, in high definition or high resolution. And that's the, the phrase I want to use today and in this series to describe what we're talking about here and what Paul is talking about here in Galatians. High definition, high resolution person. And then you discover that this same person is also a really good person. Some, sometimes you just, there's no other way to describe him. You go, this is just a really good man. Well, this is just a really good woman. And, and they, they, it's like they're presenting goodness to you in high resolution. And you see it up close, and so my grandfather was certainly that that person for me. Um, I, I wasn't a Christian growing up; I was agnostic. None of us went to church. I was always told Jesus is nice, but there's plenty of other things. Uh, right? So, so this is what. But but this, this man leaves this Im- lasting impression, and it's it's interesting because he's very different from me, very different, and um, personality-wise, and and, and character, and, and and things like that. But but I just look back at him and I go, ah. Oh. This is the proper way of life. That This, if more people live like this man, this world would be a better place. So I just want to stop there, and I want us just to think about who has been that for us, for you. They're unusual, these characters. They're unusual people, but just think, has there been someone like that for you? And again, don't think of someone who's like you, right? They may be very different from you, very different, and yet you look at them and you go, oh, that's... That's the proper way of life. More of us live like that. The world would be a better place. I want to start there by telling you about my own personal experience of this and of the, of the, the, the possible experiences that you've had of, of this as well, because otherwise it's quite hard to talk about the proper way of life, right? Because we live in a pluralist society, uh, and, and it's hard to talk about the proper way of life in a pluralist society. What, what, what does that mean? Well, it means, it means that we live in this, in this culture where there is not one story that binds us all together, to which we're all committed. There's not a story that creates this mutual commitment to each other, right? That, that we don't have that, what do we have instead? What do we have? We don't have one story, we have multiple stories, sometimes uh, contradictory stories that are acting on us simultaneously, so that sometimes we find ourselves living out of one story one minute, and then living out of a very different story the next. So for example, uh, obviously Christianity is one of the stories that operates in the background of our culture, and out, out of that story out of that story, we, we, we were told, look, Humility is a virtue. Be humble. That's a good thing to, be, to, be, to show humility. And then there's other stories in the working in the background of our culture at the very same time, which is saying, hey, have you got it? Flaunt it, right? And so sometimes it's quite hard to live quite contorted lives as, as we try to live out of these different stories simultaneously they are pulling in different directions. I love the way one thinker uh, describes it. He says that we, in the modern world is a pandemonium of myths thrown into a disorderly heap. Okay, this is a quote from Nietzsche. I was going to try and slip one by you, okay? <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna, we'll put that on the Nietzsche counter. I think that's number two or three this year. That's not bad. We made it to, to, to June, and, and here we are. Uh, but I love, I love the way he, he says this. A panda, the modern world is a pandemonium of myths or stories thrown into a disorderly heap. And in this disorderly heap, who's to say which story should come out on top and which is a story that, that should dominate our lives and bind us together and create that mutual commitment to each other? Who, who's to say And so, if there is any collective wisdom in our cultural context, it turns the the question back on us. How should we live? What is the proper way of life? Well, look within. Look within, our culture says. So what do we discover when we look within ourselves? See if this sounds familiar. We may discover a constellation of forces at work within us. Different, often competing drives and instincts. If you look inside yourself, you find multiple sometimes conflicting desires emerging and acting on us simultaneously. We might find ourselves sometimes wanting to act on several all at once. You have know, different things we love, but sometimes we find those different loves pull us in very different directions. So we, you see the situation where we're in this context where there are multiple cultural forces working on us on the outside and multiple forces constellation of forces at work drives instincts urges working on the inside of us and it's very hard then to become like one of these these crystal clear sharply defined high resolution people who presents goodness to the world in high resolution it's hard to become that kind of person in that kind of context but the good news is into this chaos into this chaos the new testament presents us not with an idea And not with uh, an organizing principle, and not with a system, and not with a philosophy, but the New Testament presents us with a person, with the person of Jesus Christ. With the person of Jesus Christ. Here is the most clearly defined person in human history. Here is goodness. Here is goodness in the highest resolution possible. And the amazing thing is, is that this high-resolution, high-definition person says, I am going to give you my spirit. Now, just think about what that might mean for people like us in our context with the constellation of forces working on us on the outside and on the inside, uh, pulling in different directions, and then this person, high-definition, goodness and high-resolution, comes to us and says, I'm going to give you my spirit. Can't get any more intimate than that. Think about what that might mean. Last week, we celebrated... Um, the, the, the Pentecost, right? Well, I, I didn't. I was in bed sick, right? But the rest of you did, right? So there was, it was Pentecost Sunday where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that God gives us of, of himself. And so one of the things I want us to understand about the work of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is working to bring us to full personhood, is another way of saying it, to make us clearly defined people, to organize that chaos of the constellation of forces that work within us and work outside us to make us the kind of people who can present goodness, the goodness of God to the world in high resolution. So let's think about um, this this person that Paul is is thinking about who's been brought by the Spirit into high resolution. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness, self control. This is very clearly defined characteristics. This is not, this is not just a list of, of stuff Paul happens to like, right? This is, um, it's not like that, what was it, in the sound of music, that song, you know, raindrops some roses, whiskers and kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with, these are a few of my favorite things. Um, that was horrible. <laughs> but, but, uh, these are a few of my favorite things. Is that better? I don't know. Probably not. So, so this, is, this is not that, right? This is not just a random list of stuff Paul happens to like. He's talking about a clearly defined person who can present the goodness of God in high definition, the sharpest resolution possible. It's interesting because we're, it's tempting, right, to look at a person like this from the outside From the outside and say, "Oh, look! Look at this. It's so serene, so beautiful, so sharply defined, so clear." But perhaps they're not psychologically uh, as complex. Perhaps they don't struggle in the same way. They don't know what it's like to get pulled in these multiple different directions the way I do. They don't struggle. It's not as a struggle the same way it is for me. Um, and so I think that's why it's really important that Paul doesn't just look from the outside at this person, but he does this deep dive into beneath the surface of this person. He wants to get to the core of this person to show us the process that this person goes through and has gone through to, to become this high-definition person, that the process that this person has experienced um, and, and the struggle they've gone through in order to, 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 to be that kind of person. And, and so he, he says this. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit against the flesh For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires since we live by the Spirit let us keep in step with the Spirit so to be clear right What Paul is saying here is it's not that this person doesn't know what it's like to have a constellation of forces at work within them, drives and instincts, and and a constellation of forces. He lived in a very multicultural context, Paul did. Multiple cultural stories going on at the same time, working on the outside of him as well. It's not that this person doesn't understand that. It's not that this person never knows what it's like to be pulled in different directions by competing drives and instincts and and, and this constellation of forces. It's not that they don't know. In In fact, I think that this person has probably experienced this kind of tension of being pulled in different directions at the same time more intensely, more intensely than most people. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes this. Um, He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army. He's fighting in World War II, right? So he says you only find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it right? while they're going through the Blitz. He's thinking about that, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. I like that. He says he's the only complete realist. So Paul says, you know, the the person who is, is walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, um, is also the person who has had to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, right? So it's, it's nice to, to, to think about walking by the Spirit. That sounds like walking on cloud nine, right? Walking, walking in, in, in the air, a few inches in the, in the air, right? Sounds very nice. But then there's this very violent side to this as well, isn't there? They've had to put to death right? Crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Oh, and, and it's important to, to just, as a side note, when he says flesh, he's, he's not talking about the human body, right? He's not, he's not saying that the human body is made of matter and physical stuff and therefore it's evil. God is the inventor of matter, right? Paul would be the first to affirm the goodness of creation. So he'd never say something like that. What he's doing is he's using this Greek word sarx, which is the, the, the word for flesh, which is actually, he's using it symbolically and metaphorically to describe our decadent nature, our, our proclivity for evil, our, our tendency to want what's bad for us, right? And our inability to organize ourselves, into personhood, right? And, and so he's, he's talking about, about that. He's talking about our decadent nature, which is pulled in every different direction by these drifting and shifting and changing passions and desires. And the person who is brought into high resolution goes through this. Take up your cross, Jesus says, and follow me. This is the journey to full personhood, to becoming a res- high resolution person. But wait, it's not just about giving definition to you. And it's not just about giving definition to me as an individual. Actually, Paul is, as usual, always thinking communally, collectively, corporately. So the, the, the fact that Paul is actually interested here in the, how the Spirit of God. It's not just living in me, but in us, in the midst of the, the people of God. Uh, and the fact that he want, he's talking about the Spirit giving definition to us as a community uh, becomes clear if we look at just the, the few verses before he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He says this, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. What what he's talking about here is not a community. He's talking about a group of individuals who are at each other's throats, who are divided, who are taking what they want from each other, um, and just using each other and, and there's discord and there's and division. And then he compares that group of individuals to the Spirit because then he starts talking about the fruit of, of the Spirit right after that. And so this gives us a clue of how we should be understanding and thinking about and processing this, this idea of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It, it's not the fruit of the Spirit is love. Do I feel warm and loving today? I'm not saying you shouldn't reflect. It's good to be in touch with yourself. That's good. But um, that's one reflection question. But there's another one which I think Paul would prioritize. That's maybe secondary or tertiary. The prioritize is saying, how are people right now experiencing love from me when they encounter me this week? And that can become a very practical question. It's not this nebulous thing, Right. It's not ambiguous. Or, or joy. It's not, how, how am I feeling like I'm on cloud nine today? Am I walking on air? Do I feel good? Did I get out on the right side of the bed? Hey, you know, we all get out on the wrong side of the bed. But regardless of whether I got out on the wrong side of the bed or not this morning, how, are, how am I bringing joy into people's lives? Peace. Again, like we said in our Colossians series, it's not about, do I feel serene? Do I feel calm? Do I feel zen today? But, but is do I make peace between people? people, between individuals, between communities that might be at odds with each other. So that the fruit of the Spirit is not just this navel-gazing inward journey, but it has to do with how we show up in each other's lives. And so I I would, here's one um, application this week, make a list of the fruit of the Spirit that that Paul gives us, this high-definition person, and, and then start listing the people next to that that you're going to come across this week. And as a meditation, in an extended meditation this week, think about how those people are going to experience this because you step into their lives this week. Some of you know the story of St. Augustine. He was 19 years old when he read a dialogue by the Roman philosopher Cicero. And in there, Cicero says that every person sets out to be happy. Well, you know, obviously. Who who as a child grows up hoping that they're going to be thoroughly miserable? So so we we don't do that. And yet, and yet, life is often characterized by conflicting desires and frustrations and, and unfulfilled longings. So, so every, you know, everything we've been talking about this morning, right? The passions, the desires that pull us in different directions, that constellation of forces that pull us in one way and then another. So, so this was a problem that, that Augustine wrestled with early on. And, and he came to the conclusion that our lives are out of order, they're in chaos, they're not sharply defined, they're not high resolution because we have what he calls disordered loves. Augustine was convinced that what defines a person, what gives definition to a person more than anything else, is what we love. He said that when we ask if someone is a good person, that's what we started thinking about at the beginning of this message this morning, when we ask what is a good person, what, what we're asking is not what they believe, but rather what they love. He says that what we consider human virtues, like courage, honesty, are essentially forms of love. Courage, for instance, is loving your neighbor's well-being more than your own safety. Honesty is loving someone enough to tell them the truth, even when it puts you at a disadvantage. On the other hand, sin, Augustine said, is ultimately a lack of love for either God or for your neighbor. The essence of sin, he says, is disordered love. There's different loves pulling in different directions. Disordered love. Disordered life means disordered love. The lack of personhood is disordered loves. If, 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 for example, I love my own reputation more than the truth, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lie to you, and, and, and I'm going to become a pathological liar, and soon you won't have a relationship with me. You'll just be relating to this mask I'm wearing. If I love my reputation more than I love the truth. If you love making money more than your family and your friends, in other words, what, what it's saying is that you're taking something that should be at maybe your, um, right, God first, then your family and friends second, and we're taking that, and we're moving that down to number 10, and we're taking number 10, which is the love of money, and we're putting it at number 2, or number 1, right? This this disordering of loves. And what happens? Well, the family's going to get neglected, and people are going to get hurt and crushed by the wheels of that. It, it leads to this, this relational, disordered lives, chaos. One author says this, "Um, I'm just working hard to be good at what I do. I'm just seeking to find someone to love me. I'm working out so I can be a good steward of my body. I'm working hard to accomplish something in politics or business or to have a good career or just make a little money for security or provide for my family. Is that right? Is that really what we're doing? Or is it really the elevation of something else to where it shouldn't be? Is it the disordering of our loves? And that's, that's something we, we need to wrestle with. So here's one more application for today. Make a list of the things you love. And I want you to keep that list. Put it on your fridge. Put it somewhere we you're going to see it. Keep that list for the duration of this summer series of things that shape us, right? Keep that list. Make a list of the things you love. And then think about how they are ordered, be as honest and brutal as you can. How are these things ordered right there in, in your life? Because my hope is as we go through and we start thinking about you know prayer, reading the Bible, taking communion, being baptized, witnessing to our faith, my hope is that the, 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 these are the very disciplines that the Spirit of God wants to work through to reorder our loves, to bring them into the right order, to turn us into those high-definition, clearly-defined people so that we can present the goodness of God in the highest resolution possible. Amen. Let us pray. Father, there are a lot of things that we love and we, we often get it wrong and we, we, we love the things that should be <laughs> number five and we make them number one. And, and, and so, God, we ask that by your Spirit and through this time together in the coming weeks ahead, you would reorder our loves once again. Father, please come. Make us those clearly defined people. Make us the kind of people who can present you and your goodness to the world around us in the highest resolution possible. In Jesus' name, amen.